Turn to Proverbs chapter 8, please, as we continue to look at this book of wisdom. I would ask you a question as we look at verses 22 through 36. I would ask a question, why try to be wise? What difference does it make? Why should I even worry about whether my life is filled with wisdom or shaped by wisdom or whether it is a goal of my life to be wise? Wisdom is a reflection of God. It is a way of thinking. It is a way of living. It is a way of cooperating with God. Wisdom is of God. It is like God. It demonstrates God. It leads you to God. And we're going to look at the idea of wisdom. In verse 1, God personifies wisdom. She is a woman, a virtuous, godly woman crying in the streets. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. Wisdom cries out to everybody, listen to me. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. She cries out by the gates, verse 3, at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. And it is personified, wisdom is, as a godly, virtuous woman in contrast to the siren call of a, an ungodly or adulterous woman. And that is demonstrated all throughout these first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. Why try to be wise? Well, let me start out by saying it's the kind of world that we live in that demands that the remnant of the people of God seek wisdom and seek to be wise. 1971, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book and in that book he said, before long, if you cheapen life in the womb, you will see it cheapened in every other area of life. It is inevitable. And so as we gave attention to life and cheapened it in one area, it spread to another. So that now in 1998, what Francis Schaeffer prophesied in 1971 is literally coming true. For now, the problem is euthanasia. Witness the Oregon right to die law. The problem is not only euthanasia, but uh, what about the uh, killing of those uh, little babies in the mother's womb which are not perfect or might be slightly abnormal? And who knows where this ends? How selective do we become in deciding what life is allowed and what life is not. James Dobson said that in America, you can be fined $25,000 for crushing the egg of an American eagle. But if you destroy the fetus of an American child, the government will pay you for it, to do it, in many cases. Actually, it just makes no sense when you think about it. But if we go on, I want to call to your attention a problem generally in society. It's what I call the invasive power of a bad idea. Somebody comes up with a bad idea, and before long it has become a social stronghold. 
And now we spread that idea out and we move it into other areas for which it was not intended. The idea of tolerance, for instance, which all Christians should practice. The stranger was to be treated with respect in the Old Testament. But tolerance doesn't require acceptance and promotion. And so the world has said, now that we must tolerate everybody, and we must not only tolerate, but if you're not actually promoting it, you're not tolerating it. Now, I want to tell you, that's the invasive power of a bad idea. We were in Salt Lake City last, uh, last week in Mormon territory. Seventy percent of everybody who lives in the state of Utah is Mormon. And the big debate in all the newspapers, the television programs is, why would Baptists come to Utah? Why would they come to Utah? So a reporter got a man out in front of the, the uh, Coliseum and said, uh, have you come here because you think we're anti-Christian, non-Christians? And he said, no, we come here for the same reason you have sent 56,000 missionaries all over the world into the homes of Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians to tell them about Mormonism. Why have you done that? Because you think we are anti-Christian? End of interview. End of interview. Where does tolerance end? And the idea of right and wrong has been treated the same way. Recently, a young adult asked me the question, why should I seek wisdom? Because it doesn't seem to make any difference anyway. Why should I seek to clothe my mind and my life with the wisdom of the Word of God? Because since everything is is relative anyway, what difference does it make whether I have the wisdom of the Bible or the wisdom of the Koran or the wisdom of the Book of Mormon or the wisdom of, of uh, Napoleon Hill or the wisdom of uh, Dr. Spock? What difference does it make? That's the question men and women are asking today. We must, as God's people, make our case for wisdom. That's what Proverbs does. That's why I read it twice a year. That's why I would challenge you to read it twice a year until you have cloaked your mind with wisdom. In the idea of the egg and the fetus, the American eagle egg, that, that idea is, is, is determined, the price, the penalty for destroying an egg is determined on how many of that species there are. Since there are more people, it's all right to kill babies in the womb. But since there are a few eagles, it's wrong. See, now that is a perfect idea of how we decide on changing standards. That's where America is. And the problem with seeking wisdom is that wisdom is based upon the standard of the Word of God, which is changeless. Does it pay to be good? Does it pay to be wise? Does God pay back? And the answer from somebody who believes the Bible, who believes in a God of judgment, is a resounding yes. There is no question. There is no question. Notice wisdom in verses 1, 2, and 3. She is like a person. In verses 7, 8, and 9, wisdom is moral integrity. Beginning in verse 6, I will speak of excellent things. From the opening of my lips will come right things. My mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Whatever you say about God's wisdom, say this, that God's wisdom is a reflection of God's moral integrity and God's holiness and God's moral nature. He is a moral God who created a moral world. 
but also wisdom is the path to success. Verse 14, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign. Rulers decree justice. Princes rule and nobles all the judges of the earth. What he says is that the world cannot operate without wisdom. There is a body of principled truth that comes from God that is right, that is true. That's wisdom. That is wisdom. And that is what we seek. It is found in the Word of God. Let me then begin with verse 22. Let me pick it up there and show three things that literally pour forth like fountains that are rich with nutrients for our spiritual lives. Beginning in verse 22, wisdom in the Creator was pre-existent. Now hear that carefully. Wisdom in the Creator was pre-existent. Now he's already said that wisdom will help you be a success in life. That wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That wisdom is moral. I heard about a man and a woman who had been married 76 years. And uh, somebody asked, what was the secret? What was the wisdom of their marriage getting along for 76 years? He said, we go out dancing twice a week. I go on Tuesdays and she goes on Thursdays. <laughs> this, this wisdom is richer than that, folks. It is preexistent in the Creator. Now note verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. Wisdom was with God as an attribute of God at the very beginning when there was nothing, when all was dark and chaos and nothingness. The word possessed is the word that Melchizedek uses when he blesses God and says that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. He acquired something that was rightly his, and in the case of wisdom, it was his attribute. Look at verse 23. How do I know that? Or verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. Before God ever spoke and flung the world into existence, wisdom existed in God. Wisdom, this body of truth, this body of right, this moral concept, this, this summation of how to do things right, of principles of integrity existed with God. There has always been a right way. It didn't change. God is not less wise today than He was before the world. He possessed it before His works of old. I have been established from everlasting, meaning I have been set up from everlasting. From the beginning, verse 23, before there was ever an earth, when there were no depths, I was put on display, brought forth. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, there was wisdom. Christ, and you'll see a similarity here in this great song of, of Proverbs. In, in John chapter 1, Christ preexisted. Before the worlds were framed, Jesus existed. The Holy Spirit existed. God existed. We talk about a Big Bang theory, but you've still got to ask, where did the Big Bang come from? David Livingston took a, a, a group of his, of his followers who wanted to see 
the lake. The, the, they had heard that there was an end of land somewhere. And he took them to a lake, and they said, now we've come to the end of the land. And Dr. Livingston said, no, when you come to the end, there is always still God. And when you go back in time, before anything was, there was God, preexistent. Now, if God's wisdom was preexistent, and it existed before God created this, this world, the works of old, then wisdom has to be an eternal attribute of God. It belongs to God. It comes from God. It is like the mercy of God. You know, I was, I was preexistent before I met my wife. For 14 years, I preexisted. And then I met her. And then seven years after that, we married. And then I have grown all the time. I have known her. And often, I have grown because I knew her. My wisdom has grown. I have learned lots of things through marriage, like, is this a good time to talk before I raise the issue, not after? That's wisdom. Amen? All the men said. Well, all the men who've learned this said, amen. <laughs> but I have grown. Now, the difference is I'm finite. I am God's created being. So I grow, but because wisdom preexisted with God, and God is infinite, and he is from, wisdom is from everlasting as God is from everlasting. And notice, isn't it interesting, ladies, that wisdom is a she. There's a female term used. She existed with God. Wisdom. I suppose that means that wisdom exists in women where it doesn't exist in men. And all the women said, and all the men shook their heads said, what has happened to him? <laughs> he just got wise, that's all. <laughs> but wisdom in the Creator was preexistent, so that God is no less wise today. Now, what that means to me is that when I face the storms of life, when I face trials, when I face things I don't understand, I do not go to a diminished God whose powers are less than what they were. 15 million years, or whenever, whose powers are no less than they were 10,000 years ago, or whenever, whose powers are no, not diminished in any way. Since God is infinite, He doesn't need our strength. That's why He can take our weakness and make us strong. God doesn't need your strength. He needs your weakness to show who He is. And that's why He doesn't need your knowledge. You can't add anything to God. You don't bring anything to God. God already knows everything. Amen? That's why God doesn't need your mercy. If we're merciful, we're reflecting God, and He uses that and blesses that. But God is merciful whether you're merciful or not. God is an infinite God, and His wisdom is not diminished one iota by the fact that it has been from the works of old. Wisdom existed with God before the world was. That is why nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I bring nothingness. I can't add anything to God. I give my tithe, but that's not because poor God needs my help. He's nearly bankrupt. 
My tithe won't make that difference to God. My tithe goes to show God how much I appreciate His goodness to me. It's a pledge of the fact that everything I have belongs to Him. I don't seek God's love because I need to fill God's emotional cup. He has no love cup that has been drained by loving so many people. I need that, but I'm finite. God doesn't need it. He's infinite. Secondly, the book of Proverbs says wisdom was in the creation. If wisdom in the creator was preexistent, wisdom in the creation was a pattern. Now look beginning in verse 27. When he prepared the heavens, I, remember this is wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Isn't that interesting? He drew a circle on the face of the deep. The world is made generally in circles, and the word is a word that means slightly elliptical. Isn't that fascinating? We know now what the, what the astronauts saw. This is in Solomon's day. He established the clouds above. Now, we were in Utah and Montana and Wyoming last week, and we saw 10,000-foot snow peaks and 12,000-foot snow peaks with clouds below them. But generally speaking, the clouds are above. They serve the earth in a variety of ways. Now, push on. He strengthened the fountains of the deep. I, wisdom, was there. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Do you know what the book says? I was beside him as a master craftsman. Wisdom says I was right alongside God when he drew the circles of the earth. I was being put on display when he strengthened the fountains of the deep. It was my contribution as the, an attribute of the almighty, infinite creator God that when he shaped the mountains, I was there. And when he set limits to the sea, I was there. See, what wisdom is saying is that it was wisdom in God that was being reflected in all of creation. We're 93 million miles from the sun. If we were one inch farther away, we would all freeze. If we were one inch closer, we would all burn up. We would be consumed in a moment. But it was the wisdom of God before the works were established that said, here's where you set this earth and prepare it. I look at creation and marvel and wonder. I, don't, I do not think we put enough emphasis upon the doctrine of creation. We need to remind our young people that God is creator. We need to remind them that he spoke and flung the worlds into existence. They need to know that the beginning and the end of this world is not with man but with God. And the beginning and the end of this world is not materialism, as Mark said, but it is God. This is a theocentric world. It is a theo-imagined uh, uh, world. It is a theo-envisioned world. And wisdom was there. I was a master craftsman. I love to fix things around the house. Do you like to do that? In fact, it hurts my, both my feelings and my pocketbook to have to ask somebody else to do something for me. Because if I have enough time, I can figure it out. I think I'm king of the world. My wife says, anyway. 
But when I run into something I don't know how to do, I love to find somebody who knows how to do it and let them come. Now, don't do it for me. Let me do it, and you show me everything to do. Give me a pattern. Now, you put this on first, and then you put that on. How many of you are like I am? That's the way you want to do it. How many don't like to fuss with it? You'd rather go play golf. Huh? I know. I can see. Thank you, buddy, for your honesty. I appreciate that. Teresa appreciates it. The family appreciates it. Uh, but anyway, I like to have a master craftsman. See, that's what wisdom says. When God was speaking and creating all of this, I was right beside him like a master craftsman, and my, the, the wisdom of God was at work. Now, now remember that all the attributes of God tend to be together in tandems. You don't really understand the justice of God till you understand the mercy of God. You see? And you don't really understand the love of God till you understand the holiness of God. They work together. Now, working in tandem with the wisdom of God is the creative power of God. And that creative power, wisdom says, was harnessed through me, a pattern for the creation, so that the trees are a reflection of God's wisdom. That's why the leaves die, fall at the base of the tree, fertilize the roots, grow back out more life, and next year the same thing happens all over again. If I had been creating the world, I would have made it so that they would have disintegrated and you wouldn't have to rake them up, wouldn't you? And then there would have been nothing there to feed the roots. I'd have made a mess of it. My wisdom would have said, oh, I don't want rain falling down. I would rather have rain coming up. And then we'd all drown when a rainstorm because it would come up into our system. See, wisdom says I was there. I was the master craftsman. And watch this. I was daily, in verse 30, his delight. I love that. That just captured my heart. Wisdom says that daily I was God's delight. God delighted in me every day that wisdom was a part of him, that wisdom was God. And God was wisdom. It was an attribute of God. And daily, I, wisdom, was his delight. <laughs> Have you ever thought about mercy being your delight? Have you ever thought about uh, wisdom being your delight? What he's saying is that God took delight in the wisdom. If you know your spiritual gift and you know God has gifted you a certain way, then you can take delight in that mercy. You can take delight in that gift of helps. You can take delight in that gift of leadership. That's what he's saying. But he presses it, rejoicing always before him. Now, how could wisdom be rejoicing before God? How could it be that wisdom would be rejoicing before the Father? Well, the results of wisdom were on display and caused rejoicing. Take the next line, rejoicing in his inhabited world. Wisdom watched the world that he had been the master craftsman for at God's side, and he rejoiced. Wisdom was not only God's daily delight. Wisdom rejoiced before God because wisdom saw the blessing of what God had made using wisdom as a pattern. And my delight was with the sons of men. My, I, I want to look into my life and say, okay, God, what have you given me that I can daily delight in, 
and that I can see fruit of so that I have cause for rejoicing. Now notice the verse here. The verse starts with the second line of verse 30. See, I was daily his delight, then rejoicing, then rejoicing, then delight. So it starts with delight, and in the center are two lines regarding rejoicing, which pretty much explains what it's like to be in the presence of God. And by the way, pretty much explains what we're going to do for all eternity. God's going to take daily delight in us. We're going to be rejoicing in Him for, his, for who He is and for His attributes and for His, his uh, holiness and His wisdom. And that is what wisdom did in creation. Notice what, that wisdom reflects because of this delight. In verse 5, wisdom reflects prudence. And again in verse 5, wisdom reflects understanding. Wisdom in verse 6 reflects excellent things. Wisdom in verse 7 reflects truth. In verse 8 is an abomination to lips. In verse, uh, and hates wickedness in verse 7. In verse 8, all the words of my mouth are with righteousness. And nothing crooked or perverse is in them. Verse 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence again. And discretion is a part of me. Verse, four, uh, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. All these things come out of a reflection of the very creation and nature of God. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is because of the Scripture, then what difference does it make in my life? For if God had wisdom as His master craftsman in creating the world, then it gives new meaning to God's creative work in suffering, in trials. Now I understand Romans 8 from a different perspective. God is able to make all things work together toward good. For them who love me are the called according to his purpose. For just as wisdom was alongside him in creation, wisdom is alongside you in whatever you faced on Tuesday of this past week. Wisdom is right alongside the Father as he works in your life when you don't know what he's doing. Wisdom is right alongside God when he's at work in your pain and you wonder why. Wisdom is right alongside God for the pools when they've gone through this tragic death. Wisdom is right alongside God saying, I'm working it all out. And you and I can have confidence that God's wisdom is not diminished. And if he had creative power through his wisdom at creation, he has creative power to take your life and mine and mold and shape us and force us into the moral and spiritual image of Christ. I take great comfort in that. Two goats were on the back lot of MGM and one was eating a piece of film that had been tossed out, just chewing on the film. I said, my, this is a good film. And the other one said, yeah, but <laughs> not as good as the book. <laughs> and you got to think about that a minute. We get our wisdom from what we see and what is reflected in other people around us. Wisdom, like many things, is as much caught as taught. You cannot just teach wisdom. Yet, on the other hand, the, the proverb writer Solomon now moves in verse 32 to his third and last section. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Now he's talked about wisdom as the companion of God. Now he personifies wisdom and says, I will teach it to you and do not disdain the teaching. 
So here, wisdom is both caught and taught. We can see it from a reflection in the lives of others, but we learn it directly from the source, God, who is wisdom. And here's the third thing that the writer of Proverbs says in this passage, verses 32 to 36. Wisdom in the created was a promise. Notice the promise. Listen to me, my children, verse 32. For blessed are those who keep my ways. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Now remember, a proverb is a a truth that is self-contained. It is a truth that is applied. It is a principle that has been established because it is observable. It is memorable. It can be memorized. It is transferable. You and I can practice it. Sometimes a proverb is a generalization, and it is not a prediction or a promise. It's a description of something that happens over and over again. Most of the verbs in the proverbs are verbs of action which recur repeatedly. For instance, in Proverbs 15, chapter 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. See, we've observed that, that a soft answer can turn away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So it's a general truth that is applied based upon the truth about the nature and the character of God. But here's an exception. Proverbs says that wisdom comes right out and says, I have a promise for you. Listen to me, my children. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Now what is that blessing? Here it is. Verse 18. The blessing is riches and honor are with me. Enduring riches and righteousness, my fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I would rather give my children wisdom than to give them silver and gold. Read the other day about a lady who retired in 1944 from Goldman and Sachs with $5,000. In 1994, she gave $45 million to her college that she had in she had made from investing that $5,000. That's wisdom. That's a lot of money. Don't you wish that were your great uncle? I mean, your great aunt, excuse me. I got the sexes mixed here. But even more important than that, says wisdom, is that you have me because I am more important than riches and honor. They are with me so that you don't seek them. Solomon didn't ask for riches when God gave him a choice. He asked for wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, he got wisdom. But he also got riches and honor. He didn't always use it wisely. Notice in verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. Notice in verse 32, Listen to me, my children. Blessing is to those who keep my ways. And verse 34, blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. It is the man who is pouncing on every wise thing to learn it and apply it in his life. For whoever finds me, and here's the next blessing, finds life. But in finding life and wisdom, we obtain favor from the Lord. Now, here's the bottom line. He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. But the promise is that while the foolish love death, the wise will find life, and they find life in the presence of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. Now, how many times have you heard me say, ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't want us to seek him for his hand. 
I think one of the greatest travesties of the last part of the 20th century is that we have been taught in a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons that God owes us something and we need to ask him, ask him, ask him and seek his hand, his hand, his hand. When all along wisdom is saying, oh no, why do you first seek his riches? Why do you first seek silver and gold? Why do you first seek honor? Seek wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is a characteristic of God. And when you seek wisdom, you're seeking God. And when you seek wisdom, you are seeking the face and the presence of the Lord. And at the bottom of it all, what the book of Proverbs means to me is that the practical way I seek the presence of God is to seek the attributes of God. And when I seek the attributes, I seek His wisdom, I seek to clothe my life in His wisdom and to empower it by the Holy Spirit, then I understand that Christ is the wisdom of God. If I want to know God's favor, let me seek God's face by seeking His mercy and seeking His favor, seeking His wisdom, seeking His favor, seeking His holiness. Not His gifts. Not his correction of my children. Not his correction of my grandchildren. Not his fixing of every problem. Let me come into the presence of God. Let me know that I've been with God. Let me seek his favor. When you come to this place on the Lord's Day morning, it is not my purpose that you would come here to hear a great sermon. I do not work to give you a great oratory. I want you to come into this place on the Lord's Day feeling like you have been in the presence of God. If you, if you don't have God, if you don't have a sense of His presence, you'll never make it in life. You cannot learn enough about God just mentally in order to make it. It's being in the presence of God Seeking his face, his favor, his wisdom. Not his gifts, who he is. He's wise. He is merciful, seeking him. So there are four reasons why I would seek wisdom. It is valuable because it is one of God's attributes. It is valuable because it is based on the standards of God's own character. And God's attributes cannot contradict his character. It is valuable because it carries me beyond man and his reasoning. It is valuable because Christ is the wisdom of God. I wish Adam and Eve had listened to the wisdom of God. I wish Nimrod had listened to the wisdom of God instead of trying to build one power. I wish Esau had listened to the wisdom of God. There are times I wish you'd listened to the wisdom of God. And there are many times I wish I'd listened to the wisdom of God. <clears throat> Irma Bombeck, before she died, she said, When I stand before God at the end of life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left. But I could say to God, God, I have used everything you gave me. And I would like to stand before God and say to God, God, I have not only tried to use everything you gave me, I have tried to seek your face and your favor by seeking who you are. And I've sought in the power of the Holy Spirit to live that out. That's why coming into God's presence on the Lord's Day morning is so very valuable for every one of us to get a taste of what it's like 
to walk with Him, to set a course for the week that follows, to prepare us for whatever God has, because God is wise and He is good. Amen. Just bow your head with me for a moment.